Happy New Year and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Two years ago, when I founded this endeavor, I never thought we'd still be dealing with the earthquake known as COVID-19 and all of the variants. Heck, I didn't even know what COVID-19 was in January 2020. Like you, my work life has changed dramatically and I am challenged every day to keep up with all the changes in both higher education and college athletics. Someone who has been thinking a lot about the necessary changes needed in college athletics for several years now is my guest today on the podcast, Dr. Kevin Blue, former athletics director at University of California at Davis and the former senior associate athletics director at Stanford, is now the chief sport officer of Golf Canada. Kevin has written quite a bit about the intersection of higher ed and college sports, mixing in his financial acumen and a doctorate in sports psychology. His commentary is always thought-provoking and included in his writing have been a few case studies that challenge college administrators thinking when confronted with difficult personnel situations. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to you today. So I was looking at Google Maps to see where your new office is located, and you are in Oakville, Ontario, not far from Niagara Falls. There's been a lot of back and forth about how Canada and the U.S. have managed the pandemic. As a Canadian who went to school and worked in the U.S., what are your observations? It's been uh, it's been an interesting process, Karen, um, not only observing, but moving countries during the pandemic. You know, my family and I moved from, from Northern California to back to Toronto, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously a challenging environment for everybody, but both countries are handling it a little bit differently. Canada has been a little bit more restrictive and a little more conservative and potentially in part because of the, uh, you know, fears about capacity in the healthcare system and two different, two different systems, two different cultures. And it's been, it's been fascinating to watch. How has athletics been treated there? Are there spectators in arenas? I mean, how, how are they managing it overall? Uh, well, in fact, like our organization runs a PGA Tour event called the RBC Canadian Open and the LPGA event uh, called the CP uh, Women's Open, and, and we've had to cancel them um, in, in, for two years now, in fact, uh, because of restrictions on not only attendance, but also border crossing. So players, you know, players coming from, from the U.S. and around the world to Canada has been a difficult thing during the pandemic. So there's been, um, you know, indoors and in, right now in in, in the uh, NBA and the NHL in Toronto, there's res attendance restrictions and, um, you know, people have different views on, on that. And uh, hopefully we all can get back to normal as soon as possible. I think I remember hearing the Toronto Blue Jays didn't play home, a home series until what, July or something like that? Yeah, it was a long time. They were in Florida for a while, then in Buffalo, and then they finally got home and uh, we were we were pumped up about that to get back out to the J games, and we 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 took that in as much as we could. But um, you know, again, it's uh, it's been a, a challenge, and and we're just hopeful that uh, we can all put this behind us at some point here. We, we could not agree more. Could not agree more. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about one of your essays. And I mentioned to you earlier that one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because you've been so. Um, academic, if you will, about uh, the practitioner space of being an athletics director and where college athletics should go. And so you've written a number of essays. I've linked to them on the, uh, on the, on the webpage. 
And one of the things you mentioned was, was an essay that you wrote called Rising Expenses in College Athletics and the Nonprofit Paradox was actually used by uh, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby at a U.S. Senate hearing in 2020. In this essay, you outline the systemic factors and behavioral economics that explain why spending in college athletics has been so hard to control. My audience is primarily senior leaders on college campuses. So walk us through your premise and what drove you to write it. Um, sure, happy to. There's a, there's, a, there's a few layers to this, Karen, but I'll start by talking a little bit about my motivation to collect those ideas. Obviously, writing is an expression of uh, or a means to force yourself to understand a problem. And, um, you know, so as a relatively young athletic director observing what was going on and being enmeshed in the, in the, um, in the culture of, of college athletics, I was like all of us trying to figure out, okay, what's happening here and why, like, why are these, why is spending continuing to go up, whether it's on salaries or facilities. Um, and in many cases for good reason in, in the student athlete experience, so what's happening and why, and and also like what are the factors driving the behavior? Because I think some of the criticism that comes of of um, of some of it is a little bit misplaced. I think people are eager to sort of point to the moral failings of various leadership groups or presidents and athletic directors. I think that's actually simplifying the issue in a in a way that's problematic. Um, I I think that as I outlined in the in the article. This, the way that the system incentivizes investing to win, um, and of course the opposite is not investing and not winning and therefore having a hard time retaining your ability to lead, um, the way that the system incentivizes that and does not incentivize um, holding costs down to, to make a profit because of course you've got nonprofit organizations, like that's a systemic thing. That's a very strong environmental influence and I think that leaders, myself included, I, I think others who, who are in positions that aren't in Power Five leadership chairs now, that if they were in these chairs, I think they'd be just behaving in the exact same way as the people that are there, whether at the presidential level or the athletic director level. So I really want to understand, like, these are smart people that mean well, and they have, and they're not, you know, trying to exploit athletes or hoard resources for themselves. Why is this happening? Uh, so I, I, I really tried to understand that. And once I felt like I understood it, I tried to tried to explain it, which I'm I'm happy to go into some of the some of the specifics if you'd like. But I and let me just say, I agree with you. There are a lot of good people in higher education who want to do what's best for their their students, their athletes, their staff, their institutions. So we can agree that that is a definite um, motivation. But you're, I agree in many ways that the system is not set up to reward that kind of behavior. So go ahead and give us some examples. Yeah, so the, the basic premise, the, the sort of tagline of the article is about the nonprofit paradox, meaning that the nonprofit system, the organizational structure of, of, of athletic departments as nonprofit organizations is what's really driving a lot of the spending. So if you think of um, you know, a traditional nonprofit organization, such as a food bank to oversimplify the matter, you know, a food bank exists to accomplish a mission and, um, when the food bank garners resources, whether from donors or grants or whatnot, they take those resources and they use them to try to um, make as much impact as possible in a way that's aligned with their mission. And uh, universities and school systems are also nonprofit organizations and they're also mission oriented. The difference is that in college athletics, 
it is a, it's also a zero sum competition, meaning that there, for every winner, there's also a loser and only one team at the end of the year can win the conference championship. And by definition, if you look at college football, half the teams are going to have losing records. And by definition, there's always going to be people that are, you know, three and nine and their coaches on the hot seat. Um, so the urgency and, and incentive to, to win or to not lose is different in college athletics compared to any other nonprofit industry in the United States. Like there's no other industry in the U.S. Um, that includes the combination of a nonprofit structure where all money goes back into the mission and zero sum competition, which robustly incentivizes people to spend money to be successful. And so as you, it, when you're in an environment where there's accelerating revenue, as the TV revenue has, has compounded over time, uh, it's only been a natural response for leadership, whether this is presidents or athletic directors, to take this money and to use it, all of it, uh, against their mission, which does include trying to compete successfully and trying to win. And because again, the, the cost of not doing that is, is failure and, and, and it puts leadership in a pretty difficult position. So, um, so that explains like, that's a very simplified version of, of, of the idea. There's, there's, there's no other, outside of election politics, there's no other um, uh, industry or circumstance in the US where you have a nonprofit organizational structure where there's no incentive to hold your cost down um, to make a profit. And zero sum competition, where there's a very, very high incentive to spend as much as you can to be successful. And the combination of these two things in college athletics is, is what drives a lot of the spending. The same incentives do not exist in professional sports. Like if you think about the NFL, you have, uh, you have the same economic dynamics as far as media revenue and, and the change in the media model driving an increase in rights fees. You have the same desire to generate revenue from ticket sales and sponsorships and other things. Um, but you also have a group of owners who are interested in, in making an operating profit or increasing the value of their franchises or at least not losing a lot of money. And as a result, they are, um, they're eager to hold down costs because, it, you know, an extra million dollars paid out to their coach is a million dollars out of their pocket. And that same dynamic does not exist in college athletics, which is a nonprofit organization without, without any shareholders uh, in the traditional sense. So this is um, this this is like the core idea, and I think it's 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 what explains the um, behavioral uh, or the the choices that are made by leadership when it comes to compensation and facility spending, et cetera. You have a high amount of pressure, and frankly, competitive imperative to spend this money. Um, you have very little disincentive to spend it because there's no no one trying to make a profit margin. There's no dividends to pay. Uh, as long as the money's there and it's able to be spent, the incentive is to spend it all. And so what happens is whoever makes the most revenue ends up spending and investing at the highest possible level, sets the bar for everybody else, and everybody else is scrambling to try to reach that bar. And that bar just keeps going up and up and up as revenue compounds um, over time. So again, that's the fundamental idea. And I think that it, it, my explanation may not do it justice. I think I'd encourage people to read the paper, but it's been an idea that has hopefully helped a few people understand the dynamics of what's happening in a more complete way. I think it's an excellent um, way of thinking about it. And it makes me think about the term equity. 
So when you have equity in your business, as NFL owners do, um, their franchise values grow at a remarkable 9 to 12% a year. Most of us would love to get that kind of return on our investment year in the year out. But where's the equity in college athletics to see a return on your investment? It becomes winning and losing. It becomes the director's cup. It becomes the ability to attract people like at Alabama, uh, students to your campus because they wanna be part of tailgating and Saturday extravaganza. So we measure equity differently. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an important, it's an interesting thought, right? The most um, profit oriented, uh, it's certainly in the group of NFL owners that exist in the NFL are, 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 are capitalist um, oriented business leaders, right? Um, but this, this group of people has figured out that the most effective way to run their league is to share revenue as much as possible, restrict spending as much as they possibly can, because they recognize that zero-sum competition is going to drive them all to spend as much money as they can to try to win, and they need to limit themselves from doing that. And um, so it's funny, because when you talk about... Um, legislating spending caps, uh, whether it be on coaches' salaries or facilities or whatever the case may be. And you hear um, perspectives that, uh, you know, well, that would be un-American and, that, and that's not, you know, this is a free market. You know, the most free market oriented group of people in the United States, one could argue, are the business leaders that own NFL teams. And they've run their, they've set their league up in a way that recognizes when you mix, um, um, zero-sum competition with the ability to spend a lot of money it it leads to that money being spent and it'll they, they know they drive themselves out of business um if they if they did that even the even even the high the, the large market teams of course have a little bit of a different view but not that different like even the big market teams recognize that the uh the viability of the league as a whole is is, is dependent in large part by the, the viability of, of all the teams. And, and as a result, um, you know, the revenue sharing and the, and the salary capping that goes on in the NFL is something that all of the owners are, are participating in. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to observe that contrast. And in, in college athletics, it's very unregulated, of course, other than at the moment, uh, compensation for athletes. Correct, correct. And I would argue too, that the NFL owners have another thing in their back pocket, which is, who pays for how much of their stadiums, right? Because the stadiums end up generating enormous amounts of revenue for them. If they can get the state or the local governments to pay a third or half or three quarters or even all of the stadium, they can make that much more money. Yeah, that's a separate separate issue that's also complicated. Uh, <laughs> well, you bring up some good points. So let's talk a little bit about the this facilities arms race. It's such a catchphrase in college athletics, but I've spoken with folks who work at the Pac-12 and work on Big Ten campuses, and the pressure that's on now to build single sport facilities is very rare, very real, and very expensive. On many campuses, other construction has been delayed or halted to the due to the pandemic, but that has not seemed to deter the facilities arms race in athletics. In fact, George Klyavkov, the new Pac-12 commissioner, said last week he was going to remind the presidents at every meeting this year of the importance of investing in their football programs coming off of an 0-5 bowl season record. You were a golfer at Stanford and a senior administrator. And in 2020, Stanford dropped and then added back 11 Olympic sports. 
Talk with us about this paradox for a Power Five conference trying to keep up. It seems kind of crazy. Yeah, well, um, again, the, the, the bar for spending and the bar for investment is set by those who make the most revenue because there's no incentive to take the revenue that you make and take it as profit margin and pay it out to your owners because there are no owners in, in college sports. So in, in the leagues uh, right now in, in the SEC and the Big Ten, uh, there is some degree of separation in terms of revenue that's being generated by those leagues. And, and there's forecasts for even more separation when considering the dynamics of the media environment. And so, so the, the, the challenge that the Pac-12 has is that in an unregulated environment where people can spend all the money that they make, the Pac-12 is going to not be able to organically generate the revenue that those other leagues are, and therefore they're not going to have as much resource available to spend. And if you, if you could look at this purely from a theoretical standpoint, the best thing that the Pac-12 could do to become more competitive is actually to lobby for overall national limits on what people could, could spend. They're not, the Pac-12, um, and just the nature of how um, you know, media and, and fan support works in the United States, the PAC-12 is not going to be able to generate revenue, uh, sustainably generate revenue at the level that the SEC and the Big Ten will. So in order to level the playing field, the PAC-12 PAC is better off um, trying to find a way to cap the top end rather than just continuing to pursue um, the growth rates that they're seeing in the SEC and the Big Ten, which are not the, the, the PAC-12 most likely will absent any like pretty outside the box um, arrangement in their next media contract pro probably will not be able to sustainably grow at that at the pace of those other two leagues. I think that the commissioner's comments, I understand them. They're very, it's a very rational thing to do to make sure that they're communicating with, he's communicating with the fan base. He's communicating with the coaches, uh, you know, by making those comments uh, publicly uh, I'm not sure if I was a, a president on a campus and I saw those comments, I'd feel great about sort of how they positioned myself and my school. I also think that it ignores the reality that, um, you know, half the teams are going to lose half the games, uh, or half the teams are going to lose and half the teams are going to win. So if every single Pac-12 school is making the same level of investment, half of that money is going to be wasted uh, by definition. Um but again, that's the 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 the, re the reality is like given the unregulated environment and given how important popularity is as a uh, as a currency for for leadership in higher education, there I understand what the commissioner is doing and why. It's a good point. I hadn't thought about the the issue of staying in power and remain retaining your popularity and feel like you're a man of the people, so to speak, in that situation. Um, we saw a lot of a lot of schools really talk up the deficits that they were incurring because of the pandemic, and it seemed like many of them reverted to cutting sports. I mean, what are your thoughts about that for these big uh, land grant institutions? Should they be cutting sports? Uh, again, it's it's the same. It goes back to the same type of explanation, right? Nobody wants to cut sports. The the leadership that are that are involved on these campuses do not want to cut sports. But when they're left with a choice of uh, invest more in the sports that create the highest return for for the campus, which in many cases is you know football and and men's basketball and to a degree women's basketball. You know it's either become less relevant in those in those sports or invest more institutional money to continue to 
allow the budget to grow at the rate of the growth of competitors or it's reduce um, non-revenue producing sports. Those are tough choices to make. Yeah. And uh, nobody wants to make those choices. And it's, there's not a bunch of presidents and athletic directors out there just eager to cut sports and pump all the money into football. It's not something that people set out to do in their, in their careers, but, but absent the, any way to regulate the spending, the, the choices are very, very difficult. Clearly, you know, places like um, that, that you've mentioned Stanford who has since reversed and uh, other places that have reduced sports um, strictly speaking, have the money to fund the sports that they otherwise would have cut. But that's not the decision that people are making, right? They're making the decision. Can I fund the sports where the, the rate of uh, spending is, is accelerating? Can I continue to fund those sports at a, at a, at a level that makes me competitive or not? That's, and again, and, and the, the, the challenge is a lack of, again, a lack of regulating that is just going to, it keeps putting more and more pressure, um, you know, in those, on those situations. Many folks have said the answer to this is an antitrust exemption in, in terms of capping salaries or spending. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, I mean, I've, I've, I've argued or at least uh, presented a theoretical basis for why capping spending, I think, is, is the right, uh, again, theoretical approach to solving the problems. Um, the, a spending cap does a few things. It it removes the incentive. Right now, the, every incremental dollar, every marginal dollar that's generated matters. So if, if a high revenue program makes another million dollars, that's another million dollars they can spend to spend to extend their resource advantage over somebody else. And for a low or mid-revenue program to make another million dollars, that that's that's material because it helps close a gap. Um, if you had a ceiling on on um, what you could spend, then there would also be a ceiling on how much money it mattered to generate. And uh, as a result, you would see schools be able to make different choices about what trade-offs they're making in order to generate revenue. Uh, you wouldn't have to raise ticket prices or donation levels as, as aggressively because you wouldn't have to pursue the revenue because you couldn't spend it anyway. You wouldn't have to do TV deals um, that uh, had people playing, you know, basketball games at nine o'clock on a Tuesday night. Um, you wouldn't have to do TV deals in the case of some football conferences where you're playing Friday nights and short weeks and late late night travel. Um, because again, the utility of that money would be would be diminished the closer you got to the spending cap. So there's other benefits in addition to le leveling the player playing field and controlling the absolute amount of spending that's happening in athletics, the very presence of, of a ceiling creates other follow-on benefits uh, that, that, that hopefully help improve the system and have, have some positive spillover effects. As far as the legality of a cap, um, that's, you have to ask you know, others about that uh, that have some more, uh, a, a better legal ability to, to determine if such a cap would be per se legal or subject to some kind of rule of, re rule of reason analysis. I think again, based on the, you know, my, from a theoretical perspective, seems to me that the uniqueness of the college athletics um, financial environment where you have this unique combination of nonprofit organizations engaged in zero-sum competition, that's not really a free market. It's not really a free market in the sense that in the same sense of, uh, of, of, the, of you have for-profit businesses competing against each other. And that might create uh, 
a window for some different treatment through a rule of reason analysis. But again, that's that's far beyond um, the scope of my expertise and probably something that other people are best prepared to answer. Well, you've done a pretty good job at least helping the average person understand what the challenges are. I think innately people know that we can't, the spending um, rate is just unsustainable. So what, what do we do when you're trying to offer some solutions? Let's shift gears for a second and talk about those mid-major schools and how they, one of the ways, the ways they try to keep up is using institutional funds, funds that could go to academics or campus recreation or student activities. And they also rely on student fees. I know you've worked in that environment. Tell me, tell me about the dynamics of using student fees for a division one program. Yeah, it's, I mean, so first of all, um, I believe that varsity athletics and intercollegiate athletics has intrinsic value that is worth universities investing in. And, you know, at, at, at the power five level, um, the commercial environment is such that they're able to generate enough revenue to make their programs largely self-sustaining in some cases, uh, in many cases not, but, you know, it, it, reasonably there's enough revenue coming in to make them self-sustainable um, in, in some cases. But if you look at, you know, if you look at uh, the mid and low major levels of division one, there is, there is not a substantial amount of athletics-specific revenue being generated. Um, there are often spillover effects for fundraising and other things, but, but um, intrinsically, there's, there's not revenue coming in that can sustain the overall operation. But I, but I also believe that that's okay, right? There's, there's many programs on campus uh, where you have um, very, in various academic departments that, that you know, may not just may not be justified from a traditional profit and loss sense, but that's that's what we do in higher education, and that's okay. That's right. I think that there's fair, asking questions about the amount of institutional support or student fee support, um, and the uh, whether or not that student fee or institutional support could be directed to other areas. I think that's also part of a reasonable on-campus dialogue about some of these financial issues. And, you know, I'm aware of, of that being the case in several uh, instances in the last several years. And I think that um, campus campuses and students have the right to have discussions about um, the use and opportunity costs of, of institutional funding and student fees. Yeah. And even in the last couple of years, you know, you've seen some schools that have gone up to as much as $2,000 a year for every student who's a full-time student on campus, undergraduate. And then, you know, some, you hear see students complaining, look, I never attended any sporting events. I don't care about sporting events, but I'm going to end up having $8,000 of my bill paid towards this. And it's, it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard thing. So there's some referendums on some campuses that say, let us opt in or opt out of these student fees. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think that, um, the differences in how the accounting works at public schools and private schools, and some schools disclose um, basically on a line by line basis how some of these fees are used for extracurricular activities, um, where, whereas other schools do not. So I think it's it's a little bit tricky to disentangle. Like in a in a private school environment, in, in, in largely the there's not as much um transparency around you know here's the tuition amount that you're you're paying and 
certainly some of that tuition revenue is going to pay for athletics. Certainly some of it's going to pay for, you know, some social science program or some engineering program, et cetera. Uh, it's not as it's not as it's not enumerated in as much clarity as maybe the case is in, in public schools. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I do believe that students where it is where, where there are fees assessed um, certainly have the right to uh, express whether or not they feel that um, the amount of money being uh, spent by the students through these fees is, is appropriate and and in the case of the place where I last worked at UC Davis, like there was a process in place for them to do that every single year. And so we did engage the students in those dial in, in that dialogue every single year. And that's appropriate. Um, we're in an era right now where, you know, the uh, student student loan debt, as everybody knows, has has become a, a topic that is being well understood by the public. And so it does raise, it does put increased uh, appropriate amounts of attention on, on the cost of higher education and all the things that contribute to those, to those costs, uh, I, I do believe should be scrutinized as well. Um, and, and I think in most cases around the country, there are good processes in place for, for that to be uh, evaluated and assessed. Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. I do think uh, the general public is much more aware of the cost of going to college these days. And so they do scrutinize many of the lines on the, on the tuition bill. My last question to you is this. Most of my listeners are senior campus leaders, you know, folks who currently oversee athletics. Maybe one day they're going to move into a position where they would provide oversight for the athletics director and the athletics department, or in fact, their college presidents. What would you tell them about providing good leadership and oversight to the athletic director and the athletes? And can you give us one or two examples of perhaps good or poor leadership situations? And this it's, is uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. As I I came from um, you know a larger research, well Stanford where I worked prior to UC Davis is ha, has a lot going on and. Um, athletics was overseen there by the provost, and um, and at UC Davis, it's overseen by the chancellor. Uh, and in both cases, the leadership, I, I, I had very positive experiences um, with leadership. There's the appropriate amount of engagement. Uh, there's the appropriate amount of support being provided, both in, in, in symbolic ways, like attending events, and also in important, um, in important tangible ways, um, in some cases it's financial, in other cases it's just making sure that there's an appropriate dialogue about athletics happening with the right people on campus. Um, you know, Chancellor May at, at UC Davis was uh, exceptional at, at communicating with student athletes, making sure that student athletes understood how well supported they were by the university. And, um, you know, I think that that goes a really long way with with coaches and, uh, you know, and with student athletes. Um, I, I think that it's one of the things that I've observed that's been interesting for me is the, uh, you know, presidents have a lot, presidents and chancellors have a lot going on. And um, I always wondered about what's the, what's the amount of time per day that they should be spending on athletics. And I, it was my job as the athletic director to try to make sure that they felt good about athletics and everything was in order so they could spend their time working on things that uh, around the university that, that are maybe more important. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that research universities do every day to contribute to society in very important ways. And um, so my goal was to make sure athletics was, was functioning 
in an optimal way in order to uh, to free those my you know my bosses up for uh, for other things. So it's uh, I'm sure it'll be an adventure for whomever uh, assumes leadership role over athletics. Great communication, just as as is the case in in most leadership positions, is really the key to to uh, to I think a successful uh, engagement with the athletic department. Could not agree more. Kevin Blue, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, podcast. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of where we go with spending and how we can manage it so that more schools can still be competitive. And I really appreciate it. And wish you the best of luck in your new position back with your original sport, which is golf, which is very cool. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Absolutely.